Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Olson. This podcast is produced to give fundraisers and nonprofit leaders like you the tools to increase mission impact. Tune in weekly so you don't miss a thing. Your mission is critical. Your resources are finite. You need a partner that can deliver customized, scalable, and relevant donor communications that increase response and maximize net long-term revenue for your cause. You need Altus Marketing. Check us out at altusmktg.com or email me directly at a-o-l-s-e-n at a-l-t-u-s-m-k-t-g.com to learn how we can elevate your fundraising results. And now here's today's episode. Hey, this is Andrew Olson. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm really excited to be here today with Diana Zhang. She's the founder of NeighborShare, and she's also one of the board members at Connecticut Food Bank. Diana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Andrew. So excited to be here today. I'm excited to have you here. I'm really um, eager to, to get into our questions for the day. Before we do that, take a, a minute, if you will, and tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself. Oh, absolutely. Um, so first and foremost, I'm a mom. I always introduce myself that way. I have a four-year-old named Lily and a two-year-old named Teddy at home. Uh, in my normal day job, actually, as I like to describe it, I'm actually an executive at a global asset manager based out here in Connecticut called Bridgewater Associates. Um, I've been with the firm for, uh, geez, over 15 years at this point, helping to run various parts of, of the organization. And I co-founded and started NeighborShare last April when the pandemic first hit. And um, happy to share more with you, but long story short, I have found myself making this unexpected pivot in the middle of a pandemic, going from a hedge fund executive into, you know, the CEO of a startup nonprofit. And that's, you know, that's why we find ourselves across the Zoom screen with each other today. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for, again for being here. I, so I, I want to know more about what NeighborShare is and why you launched it. Yeah, no, thank you. That's a great question. So, so, um, NeighborShare, um, our whole mission is really around empowering what we call our community's frontline heroes with a new resource that they can go to to help families and individuals through pivotal moments of need of $400 or less that would otherwise go unmet. Um, and breaking apart the pieces a little bit, because I know that was sort of a long mission statement, um, you know, by community's frontline heroes, we really mean the population out there that's already dedicated their lives to working and closely with and providing services for the community, right? So that could be the case manager and social workers at nonprofits. It could be the teachers at schools. Eventually, you can imagine NeighborShare working with the nurses at hospitals, right? Sort of our entire model is based around empowering that population because it's really our belief that those are the folks who actually have the pulse on the ground hmm. of what's happening in our communities, what needs are happening. And by the way, these are also the experts who are already spending so much of their lives and expertise identifying different resources for community members when they're hitting a, a tough and rough spot. Right. And so we also wanted those folks to help us identify the moments when, hey, despite all the effort, that needs about to slip through the cracks and it's a pivotal one. So maybe neighbor share over time can become this almost neighbors helping neighbors type of safety net, basically, okay. um, to um, to really help each other through these moments. Um, so so that's really interesting to me. I mean, I, you know, I've been I've been in a fundraiser for over 20 years now, and we've often talked about how. As, as sort of peer-to-peer -peer giving and, and giving uh, direct from a donor to a um, someone who has a need, you know, that, that that's creating a unique level of competition in the nonprofit space that like your, your sort of legacy organizations like United Way, let's say, 
just aren't prepared to take on. Do you see your organization uh, as um, supplementing the sector or is this a disruption that you're hoping dramatically changes the sector? It's interesting. I see us both as a supplementation and a disruption. Okay. Right? Like I think it would be foolish of us to not recognize that the model that we're doing is a disruptive one, right? It's it's completely different from that traditional model of we as a nonprofit raise money centrally, we do our programming and then we provide our programming. You know, we and we've uh we've definitely experienced some of the pushback even when we were reaching out to recruiting partner organizations where no, we're disrupting because we're asking these local nonprofits to act as facilitators. Now, right? So now you're a facilitator in both identifying and validating these moments of need. And then you're also acting as a facilitator to to get the ultimate resources then back to the individual on the ground that you've helped to identify, right? And that's not what they're built to do. And so it's been actually a very interesting experiment back and forth where, you know, sometimes I've gone through moments of like building neighbor share and ripping my hair out being like, we're literally trying to give you free money to help a neighbor. Like, why wouldn't you say yes, right? So there's definitely a disruptive angle to it. And then at the same time, I see it as a supplementation because I didn't start this as some big critique on all these gaps out there, et cetera. It's, it was just more a recognition of, um, of the fact that, hey, gaps do exist. And these moments of need really do slip through the cracks. And how do we just create some supplementation, right? And so the the almost the image that comes into my head is, Look, like, you know, a lot of the partner nonprofits we work with, they're the ones who are driving the longer term through time programming that helps really a person sort of um, really fundamentally improve their lives through time. Right. That could be an after school education program. It could be a domestic abuse shelter. We have, you know, we have all sorts of partners all over the country. Right. And then what and it's almost like the image in my head is almost like if those are the folks that are putting our community members on almost this awesome conveyor belt of upward mobility, think of NeighborShare as the guardrails around that. Right. Because what happens sometimes is you might have a client working with a nonprofit doing great work, you know, working to get out of homelessness or working to really better themselves and and get that next job. What happens is life happens sometimes and it threatens to punch you off that conveyor belt. Right. And, and And the life that happens could be anywhere from a $300 unexpected car repair that you're like, wait a minute, like my situation was stable. It was fragile, but stable. And then all of a sudden this car repair I can't afford threatens to have me suddenly not be able to go to work, which means I might be at risk of losing my job. And then all of a sudden the hard work I've done for the past six months with this homeless shelter to rehome myself and restabilize is like literally it could just be gone within like, you know, snap of a finger. Yeah. Right. So it could be moments like that of sort of like we're guardrailing you, like let's make sure you don't fall off that conveyor belt because this is awesome. Keep on going. Or it could be the moments where we're helping you, um, you know, so that that's sort of like the scenario of helping a family or a person sort of avoid falling over a cliff into spiraling into crisis. And then in other moments of pivotal need, it also might be the moments where, you know, we're, we're just giving you that like last mile leg up mm-hmm. to really land that improvement. Right. And so, um, you know, really compelling example that we just worked through recently. You know, we have this local partner that's a youth program. Right. They're based in Connecticut, local to me. And they'd done this really excellent work with a 17-year-old who, you know, was really, um, you know, striving to get out of gang life and to build a better life for himself, right? And the youth program did an amazing job, right? They helped keep him safe. They helped him build a network. And they helped him land an apprenticeship at a, at a local carpenter's. Okay. But then the kid got stuck because he couldn't afford $200 work boots to meet OSHA compliance to actually start yep. the apprenticeship, right? And then guess what? That awesome youth program, their budget's tight. Right. They don't have a fund called, you know, pay for work boots and there's right. no other real local resources around. And then that's where NeighborShare steps in. Right. And so, you know, within literally, I think it was two weeks of that, of, you know, that transfer going through, you know, this kid's able to start his apprenticeship. He was able to start his first savings account ever in his life. And he's on a path out. 
right? And so in that way, that was like a beautiful example of NeighborShare working with this local uh, youth program to partner together and supplement to make something wonderful happen, right? And so that's why I'm like, I think it's both disruption and also supplementation. I'm not there saying all these other programs shouldn't be that. It's no, sure. it's we saw a gap, we would love to fill it so that this multi-layered uh, safety net system that's out there in this country can just work together. Like in this nonprofit space, I know we think about competition and things sometimes like that, but it's more the like, how do we make it so that it's more one plus one equals three so it can just go help more people? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So a couple of follow-ups. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, often with other sort of direct contribution platforms and, and organizations, we see that the the people who gravitate to to that kind of support um, tend to be younger. They tend to be more entrepreneurial in spirit. Are you seeing the same thing about the people that are that are giving through you right now? It's interesting. We've seen um, sort of like a broad gamut because we also fundraise for a few different channels. Um, and in fact, it's one of the big strategic puzzles we're working through right now as we continue to build our business and figure out our long-term sustainable model. Okay. Where, um, to your point, the, the donors that are donating through our website at, at mbshare.org, we do tend to find them being the, the younger millennial-oriented, right, for, for a number of reasons, right? There's one, this notion of I definitely see trends in the younger generations around, yeah, I just want to give directly. <laughs> I don't want to worry about the overhead and where's the money going, et cetera. I know that I clicked on Mary's story and I know my money's going to go to Mary. And that's really cool. That gives me satisfaction. And the fact that, by the way, Mary's story wasn't just submitted by Mary. It was submitted by a third party who was validating that Mary's story is real. That really resonates, yeah. right? Um, and I think we've also all seen over the years, like certainly the power of crowdfunding, right? So there's this interesting opportunity to really almost democratized philanthropy where even though you might be the the younger Gen Z or millennial who can't, you know, cut the really big checks, but I have $5, $10, $20 to spare, I know I can do that and make a real difference, right? It's not a drop in the bucket. I know I, along with others, can come together and really make an impact. So in that way, I've definitely seen the trend that you're talking about. Um, and then at the same time, though, it's been interesting as we've worked through some of our bigger donors as, our, you know, once again, we're working on our building our organization, whatever else, like, I don't know, like, I think... Um, the the age range there has broadened because I think for the for the neighbor share side at least like I think the other thing that donors are interested in is the is the concept and possibility of innovation yeah right sort of like this notion of neighbor share is a startup we're in many ways a tech startup and it happens to be nonprofit so if, you know and so it's like in many ways like we don't even call our bigger donors donors we call them investors because mm -hmm. right? it's all about the folks who are really interested in taking a risk in the nonprofit space and really, you know, um, making a bet on whether or not a new innovative model can really survive and scale in, in, in the industry in a way that once again can supplement all the great help that's out there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So my, my second follow-up is, is sort of on the programmatic side. Um, what have you learned about your, um, your ability to get speed to market compared to some sort of traditional nonprofits? How, how is that? Um, how, how are you stacking up against other organizations in that area? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good and insightful question, Andrew, because if anything, just for pure transparency, I'm like, our speed to market needs to get better through time, right? Because I, I do think that... Um I do think that, especially given the nature of need that we're that we're helping with, the more real time you can make it, the better, 
right? And so in many ways, um, we are faster, I think, than a lot of other folks because um, we basically designed our process in a way that just reduces any red tape, any whatever, right? Sort of like the way we build trust and validation into our system is by working with the, you know, the nonprofits that we vetted and onboarded. And we're basically saying, hey, once you're vetted and onboarded into our system, we trust your staff. We trust your army of frontline heroes to be out there to run through whatever processes you already worked through to identify the folks in need to match to match sort of your requirements and whatever else, we don't have an extra set on top of that, right? We're here to empower the expertise you've already built out. And then once there, um, you know, we leave very sort of like broad guidelines for what sort of applies and what qualifies for a neighbor share need, right? We basically give them like three broad things, right? Which is like, one, we're here to help cover pivotal needs of $400 or less, right? You know, two, we're not here to, um, we're here to sort of like, once again, cover those um, pivotal moments of need where that relatively small amount of money can have a huge amount of impact. And we're once again, really leaving it up to the frontline hero to judge what applies within that. And then really the only other, um, you know, requirement or guideline that we have is like, look, you know, we're, we're certainly not standing up neighbor share to be, um, like a recurring source of income. Right. And so we'll be monitoring for that in terms of, hey, like, why is Mary's story popping up, you know, on the dot every every month? Like that would be a bit of an issue that we would raise and talk to them. Because Mary has bills. Right. Exactly. But sort of like we're here to be that that quick supplement. Right. On top of the broader things that they're doing. And so we set it up in a way that we really have been striving to keep it as simple as possible. Right. Like this is not the type of thing where we're trying to make our nonprofit partners run through lots of hoops, run through lots of record keeping, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, no, keep it fast. Right. And then um, and then the parts that I was saying earlier where like I'm not as happy with in terms of our turnaround is sort of like, hey, let's really work on building out our donor base, building out our um, our suite of strategic partners to really work through on the how do we just get money faster to the people as like, you know, even faster than we can currently today. Right. Like faster, faster, faster. So I think I think in a lot of ways we are faster than the typical. And then once again, given that we're still in early nonprofit, there's like a ton of friction that we can we can invest in to keep on reducing so that through time, I would love NeighborShare to become, you know, it's like the bat phone you pick up. Like, right. hey, you know, so-and-so down the street needs this help. Boom. Can we get funds in them same day? Right. Like that's the vision that we build toward through time. Okay. So, so I'm really curious to learn a little bit more about kind of the origin story here, right? So, <laughs> you know, on one side, you've got hedge fund strategy <laughs> and, and now you've got, you know, s- startup nonprofit founder, right? Mm-hmm. How did you get from A to B? Like what what yeah. what was the triggering event that caused that? Yeah, so I still remember it very vividly in my mind actually. It was um late late March last year. Um and it was at the start of the pandemic, right? We were okay. literally all sent home to work from home. I think we were all saying hopeful things like don't worry, I'll see you in May. Like it'll be okay, right? It was like literally that moment. I'm sure we all remember it very vividly. Yep. And what had happened was uh, my co-founder of NeighborShare and a dear friend of mine, um, this guy, Brian Kreider, he literally just unexpectedly called me up one night and he was like, hey, Diana. And like, you know, we worked at Bridgewater for a long time. So like, hey, Diana, like, um, and we were just catching up and he basically was like, hey, I had a reason for my call. I'm like, okay, shoot, what's going on? And he basically made a pitch for NeighborShare. He was like, hey, given sort of like his 20 years of experience in the social impact space, whatever, he'd been pulling together a few key insights that was like starting to come together into a model. And he's like, look, I've actually noodled and thought through this thing for years at this point, but never quite prioritized it, right? Like life, family, like those things just take over. But now with the pandemic hitting, and basically I'm sitting here starting to watch the world fall apart, I just feel this strong sense of urgency and energy to finally do something with that insight and see if we can bring something innovative into the world. And then me being me, I was like, 
Let's do it. Like, I, I love the concept. I love the insight. And then literally within that very fateful random Wednesday night, I think it was, I jumped in feet first being like, let's go, let's, let's go give this thing a try. Yeah. And then basically within the first seven weeks of that, of that call, you know, we had the first version of our, of our website at mbshare.org up and running. We had like a mini, mini pilot going on in Fairfield County and we were just like ready to go. Um, and then from there, what happened is over the next several months in 2020, like, you know, we just kept on experimenting, doing research, um, lots of navel gazing type questions. Like, what are we, what's our mission saying? All the things you can imagine of like starting a new org. And then during that, I actually had kicked off, um, a search, like a sort of informal, but a real search for a CEO (laughs) for neighbor share. Like the, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing my work. I'm doing my whatever. And it was funny after meeting a couple of really wonderful candidates, um, who, who are like, Hey, you don't really need us right now. You're literally like a, like a startup startup. You don't really need the, the big guns just yet. But one of them, um, who is now a board member actually posed the question of like, but why not you, Diana? Like, why, like sort of like, why are you looking for someone else? Like, why not you? And it became this really interesting moment where, um, you know, it, it, it came a life reflection moment. I'm like, yeah, why not me? Right. Sort of like this combination of certainly the passion I have for this vision, the passion I have for the mission. And like, what a, like a really wonderful way to really test out the, the cumulative training and development I've had for 15 years in this great industry. Like, let's see if we can translate it into real social impact during a moment in our country that really desperately needs it, quite frankly. Right. And so long story short, you know, I ended up taking an unpaid sabbatical for this year to really just focus on building out neighbor share. And that's what okay. I've been doing, you know, since January 1st, living and breathing this thing 125% of my time, as you can imagine. <laughs> that's, I can imagine it definitely. And that's pretty cool. Okay. Thank you. So I'm curious, you know, you, you said it a little bit at the, the start of the call about, you know, kind of pulling your hair out sometimes, but what have been, um, the, the most, uh, the, the biggest challenges or, or sort of the most memorable challenges that you've had to face down as you've, as you've launched and, and started to build this program? Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about NeighborShare's model is that, look, it's like a, this constant, almost like chicken and egg, right? It's this constant, like, Hey, we need to really make sure we're going out and growing our partner uh, network because they're really our suppliers of need, right? Sort of like without them, our model doesn't work. It's all about empowering the, the organizations, the grassroots organizations that already exist. And then on the other side, Hey, making sure that we're having donor dollars flow in so that we can actually help fulfill these needs and not just disappoint our partner organizations, or most importantly, the people on the ground who really need that help, right? And it's constant like um, flow and back and forth of like too much, you know, too many needs, not enough money, too much money, not enough needs and trying to really toggle that. And then I would say, you know, the the first half of the year, what we've been really focused on has been, um, you know, really trying to crack through and build almost like a proof of concept on this partner organization side, right? And so what we ultimately did was we did like an initial um, round of fundraising, almost like think of it as like a, the seed round for a startup, sure. right? We like had like a little central war chest and it's where like, then we started doing like the cold reach outs to nonprofits all over the country to say, hey, here's this new model, take a bet with us. Right. And, and, you know, and then as I was describing from the, on the pulling my hair out, it definitely, um, it ended up being a harder challenge than I think I anticipated. Right. Cause you kind of go in kind of confident being like, Hey, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're going in and telling the frontline heroes, like for these needs that you usually have to say no to for a person you're helping, you don't have to say no anymore. Right. It's literally like, you know, this, this, this great concept, it's free for you to use. We're making it super easy, not long forms, not long, whatever. And it's like basically free money. Right. And we're like, what could be hard about that? <laughs> and it was actually really hard, right? Um, in terms of, you know, what happens is I think we ran into a lot of dynamics where you got you get a lot of polite yeses, <laughs> right? And then, you know, what do people actually do in terms of post that, you know, introductory call? Do they actually onboard onto your side? Do they actually work through things? Right. And, you know, I think I certainly learned a lot about 
just sort of how nonprofits make decisions, how they make, you know, trade-offs. And then I certainly also come through like it's just a real appreciation of look like especially the partners that we're trying to help, right? Like tend, they tend to be the the smaller and medium-sized nonprofits, the hyper-local type folks who really have their fingers into the community. Right. Where, by the way, this $400 a pop would really make a huge difference. For sure. You know, they're all underfunded and over capacity, right? And so even when you're presenting them with a good thing, it still translates into, oh, it's another thing. Can I do it? Right. And so I think through this whole experience and working through the challenges, I've certainly developed a lot of empathy for for what our partners go through. And then via that, you know, and via good close conversations with them, we've continued to to work through the how do we keep on refining our model to make that, you know, just easier for folks. Um, and it's interesting. It's everything from process design to how you almost like make the pitch when you reach out. Right. We've gotten some feedback on, hey, early days when we were first talking, we almost said no because your pitch did sound too good to be true. <laughs> Right. And then we live in an industry where nothing that's too good to be true is real. Right? right. And so and so it was like interesting. So like once again, like developed a lot of empathy and a lot of just intel on got it. Here's how nonprofit executives and their teams and the frontline heroes on the ground, how they make decisions. And that's how we can best serve these partners. Right. And so yeah. so, you know, at this point, like once again, like I was calling a proof of concept at this point, I feel really good about where our proof of concept has been landing and sort of like, you know, at this point, we're at this really, actually really um, exciting juncture where we're really going to be getting ready to like scale, right? Like with more, you know, I truly believe that with more investment in time, there's real potential for this model to scale through in a way where hopefully we can through time build a real national movement, right? Sure. Like there's no reason for the neighborhood model to not be truly national in a way that's embedded in every neighborhood across the country. And right now, so that brings up a good point. Right now, are you focused on one specific geographic area or how does that work? Yeah. So we're actually um, fairly spread out already. And so we have, you know, in terms of our overall network, we have over a hundred partner organizations that um, are in different parts of our pipeline. And out of those hundred, we have around 45 that are very actively onboarded in our platform and submitting needs. And of those numbers, they're spread out across 26 different states at this point. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I want to go back. You know, I, I asked you what the biggest challenges were, but what's been most rewarding about this? Yeah. Um, I think it kind of just ultimately boils down to the individuals that you're helping. <laughs> right. Like, you know, like given my I can talk strategy with you all day. I can pull up all my PowerPoint decks and whatever. And it's all, you know, it's like an awesome business building, building a startup exercise, but none of that matters. All the whole reason why I'm doing this, why I'm dedicating my time, the board's time, the whatever it is, it's all about helping the person on the ground, right? And seeing sort of, you know, what happens is I have my inbox set up so that whenever a need gets submitted to the platform, I actually just see it real time. Okay. It's seeing sort of like the stories coming through of the real needs that are happening mm-hmm. and then seeing the testimonials that flow through from our partners and being like, geez, like a hundred bucks did that, Yeah. you know? Um, and it really actually changed someone's life, right? Like um, I was having lunch with a friend yesterday. I was telling about, you know, like we had this, um, recent need come through from a partner organization in LA. And it was um, on behalf of the single mother who was working through a bed bug infestation of all things, oh. right? And remember, we have a $400 limit. She only asked for $100 to buy a new mattress for her toddler. Hmm. And she was like, and don't worry about me, I can sleep on the floor. And we were like, we have a $400 limit. You can ask for more. And she's like, hey, but I don't actually need that, though. I want to make sure that money's left for some other community members who might need it more than me. But if my toddler can sleep, that'll make a huge difference to quality of life and my worries and my stress. And that would be really great. It's human stories like that. Yeah. Right. It's human stories like that where, where the kid I was talking about earlier, um, you know, who's now an apprentice and has literally a new career. Like, you know, so it's like in those moments of... Um, 
of just like frustration or like the hair pulling of like, ah, like, why can't this work? And why can't this whatever? Like, I just bring it down to like every single individual that we're helping, right? Like in July alone, we helped over a thousand neighbors across the country. Hmm. That's a thousand lives changed. Like, I, 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 you know, it's like, once again, I've, I've loved my career through time. I've done different things. This has been by far just the most soul satisfying rewarding of it. Cause like, that's what we exist to do. That's you know? awesome. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> so what, um, what have you learned about yourself in this evolution process? Yeah, no, great question. Um, I think overall I've learned and appreciated that I can be brave. Hmm. You know, I feel like one of the big things that I always worked on um, in my previous career was really my level of confidence. Like, I feel like it's sort of like, what's the, you know, like the, if you were asked the generic, like, what's the one big thing that holds you back? I think it was like my self-confidence in me. Right. And I think um, this work to really build out NeighborShare unlocked that because it suddenly became a mission that wasn't about me. It was hmm. on behalf of the community members who needed this help. And that made me brave. Right. That made me go out and like, you know, meet, you know, like it was like, it's been interesting this past year. Like we're in a pandemic. I've been, you know, stuck in the walls of my office and I probably met more new people and networked more and fundraised more and all these things more than I have in years before that. Right. Um, but because I was advocating on behalf of people who needed that help and advocating for a mission that I was really passionate about, and that made me brave. And that mm. sort of unlocked, I think, a lot of things in me as like both a person and as an executive that I really hope to carry forward, both in the future building of NeighborShare and wherever my future career might take type of thing. Great. So what what um, what advice would you share with either another, you know, another new founder or somebody who's kind of on the fence saying, well, I, I, I feel like I need to launch this, but well, yeah. what's your guidance to somebody like that? Yeah. Um, a couple of different things. So I think one... Um, you're never going to know until you take the leap, right? And But by the way, taking the leap doesn't necessarily mean I've packed up my home, given up my career. Like It's sort of like there's lots of different ways to dip your toe in the water. And so get creative about how you want to dip your toe in the water, but get your toe wet. <laughs> like Don't step away from that, right? Like Until you're in it, you're not going to really know, right? So I think that's like one key piece of advice that I'm going to keep on repeating to myself now for any future ideas and things like that, right? Like just get going in it. And you'll see, and you can like brick by brick, build little by little, and then you can decide if you want to take bigger leaps or not. But there, there's that part of it. There's two, you know, the, you know, it, and this actually ties into the answer um, to your previous question as well. Like there's like, a, you know, especially when you're about to take on something hard, like starting something new and starting something from scratch. Um, it's, you know, give yourself the freedom and the permission and the comfort of knowing that, hey, no one in the world right now knows what the answer is. <laughs> and so it's okay to be brave, to be open-minded, to take risks and to be wrong, right? And so it's sort of like, and I think that's part of the thing that's unlocked my bravery as well, which is like, well, no one's built a neighbor share before. <laughs> right. And it's okay if this bet is wrong, we're going to do this other thing. Like we're all here in experimental space. And so like, you know, approaching these new opportunities with this beginner's mindset, right? Of like, learn a ton, learn a ton. And then also with this mindset of like, hey, every everything that feels like failure, everything that feels like a mistake is actually a lesson learned to help you, you know, pivot and do the next thing. Like that's that's success, actually. Like, so that, that that's space. a very... Um... That's a very a entrepreneurial mindset. That's a very business focused mindset. The nonprofit sector tends to be so much more risk averse than that. How how do we help other leaders in this sector start to get that toe wet? I mean, because yeah. I was with you up to up till you said and be okay with a mistake or be okay with a failure, right? Because I, I think a lot of leaders 
oh yeah, let's take risk. Let's do this. But when risk results in a real tangible loss, you know, there, there are nonprofit leaders who sit at, up at night going, is my board going to fire me because of this? Right. Am I, am I going to yeah. not be able to accomplish mission tomorrow because I made this decision? I took this risk and I made a mistake. How do we get past that, um, that set of handcuffs? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. I mean, I think it so starts, I think first fundamentally with like, with values and culture, hmm. you know, like sort of like I'm able to run the business in the way that I am. And I'm able to say these things the way that you are, because like from bottoms up, right? So it's sort of like me as CEO, bottoms up and top down, me as CEO, I'm advised by this awesome advisory council, this wonderful board of directors. And I run basically um, a team of 25 volunteers. Um, we are, we're basically all volunteer run. And sort of like from the ground up, like from day one, we've always said, this is an entrepreneurial venture where we are going to be wrong, where we know what our mission is. We're not going to scope creep, but we also are pretty open-minded to the fact that five years from now, we're probably going to be something that we're not even picturing today. It's sort of like, it's just, it's just like starts in your DNA. Right. And sort of like, and it's like, there's like a question to your point of like, hey, but what if you're a nonprofit leader in a system that already exists? You don't get it started from scratch. Right. I think in those ways, I think you like start small and show different pilots. Right. Because to Mm. your point, you can't just like overnight be like, hey, board, let's change our culture. I think it's much better to take entrepreneurial risks and whatever. Like, okay, you know, let's, let's be realistic. But at the same time, I think you can probably structure some of your programs and experiments in a way where you basically um, can box in the amount of risk that you're actually taking. Right. And I think it's also like a reading the room on what is the type of risk that um, folks are willing to take in the beginning. Right. Because risk comes in different ways. It could be time. Right. Like yeah. the, the biggest thing that, that you expended was time wastage. Right. Like, oh, this experiment, whatever it is. It could be money. Like, you know, some some different companies will be um, fiscally sort of more risk averse than not or whatever it is. Right. It could be reputation, it could be whatever. So, so I think if you like kind of break it down where you're not talking about generic risk anymore and breaking it down into like, wait, so like when we're saying we're nervous about this thing or we're nervous about the progression here and it's much more about like, what are we actually worried about? Like, what are the, like, what are the things that are definitely non-negotiable, cannot break this thing? Like, do mm. not break our brand or do not break the balance balance sheet when the whatever it is like let's get real then tangible about, about that so we know what's off the table and then in terms of what the space that's left then you can get really creative about how do we start some small pilots and things like that so we can like um run some of those entrepreneurial experiments while gaining some comfort with each other in terms of oh got it if my executive is going to run this thing in such a well thought through way with a way where the risks are managed etc maybe we'll be willing to take some bigger risks through time that's that's great. So I hadn't anticipated asking you this question but you you went there so I want to go into it a little <laughs> bit you said that you manage a team of 25 volunteers. Um, that's often one of the hardest things to do because you don't have the typical compensation incentive yes. <laughs> um, to get people to do what you need them to do. What have you found to be sort of the most successful ways to, to get alignment across that diverse group and then to, to get alignment in the right direction that you need the organization to go? Yeah, absolutely. Great, great question. So I think of... Um, I think of our model, like there's both like the answer to your question from an attraction perspective, like how do you even recruit them in the first place? And then there's like a retention, then how do you keep them interested, right? And how do you keep on aligning them toward the direction and whatever else? And so breaking down my answer into those two parts for a second, from an attraction perspective, you know, like I think the recruiting of volunteers is no different than um, the recruiting of full-time people for our for-profit or nonprofit organization, right? It's all about really thinking crisply about what's the value proposition that you're making to that candidate across the table from you, right? And for NeighborShare, you know, we've always thought about it in three different ways, right? There's one, we personally believe that we have like a really, really freaking compelling mission, right? It's about the social impact as a way to give back in this, in this particular way. 
Two, I do think our sort of innovative startup approach also really helps, right? Because it's basically saying, hey, come in and not only are you going to fulfill sort of like this part of your heart and your soul where you want to give back to the community, you also get to do it in a way where, hey, you might not, maybe you're not working in a fully entrepreneurial environment in your full day job, but you get to do it here. Right? You have permission to be entrepreneur here and you have permission. And like basically what's happened, it's been really cool to see. Basically, like folks take in their expertise from their day jobs and they get to apply it almost like a couple of levels up in the organization at NeighborShare. <laughs> so it's like if you're like, you know, junior VP in your day job, you get to be senior VP over here because I don't have anyone else. And you're the volunteer like, and you're the expert. So like get going, like build. Right? right. And so I think that's actually provided a really awesome almost like career and developmental opportunity for people. Um, and then I think the last part of the value prop has been like, and you're also just joining this really awesome sort of like passionate group of like-minded folks um, of community and then also network, right? Hmm. And so it's sort of like, you know, we have this really fantastic world-class board. We have these awesome other young professionals working on the team. And so it becomes actually a really interesting way. Like, I don't know, as neighbors, your CEO, I've probably written more business school applications and done more job referrals than I have in my <laughs> like my like normal day job, right? Because it's funny. sort of like this attitude of like, we're here to help each other out. Like, let's pay yeah. a forward constantly for each other, right? So that's like the attraction thing. I think people have really liked that. And then from a retention perspective, um, you know, I don't really actually think about running my organization that differently from um from the like the it's like a normal for-profit day job with the exception of like extreme empathy and flexibility hmm. right because to your point like of course i need to recognize that hey neighbor share is nowhere near the top of the list right like you know it's like day it's like i don't know the right ordering but it could be family day job like whatever and then like you know we're third fourth fifth on the list right and so um so it's been this interesting exercise in management certainly on how do you both inject the passion the vision and the urgency while being also extremely flexible that when a volunteer comes in and be like, hey, I'm so sorry, I can't make the next you know, couple of weeks of team meetings because like this big project blew up on my at work. The answer is always don't worry about it, right? There's this balance of like you hold them accountable and at the same time, no one should be made to feel guilty because <laughs> they yeah. can't show up to a thing because they have some other real life things to deal with, right? Um, and then, so, you know, so that's been like a big thing. And then, you know, and then also just adding in some infrastructure, right? Like our whole organization has been born out of the pandemic. I yeah. haven't met probably 70% of my volunteers in person. Oh, like, I'm in Connecticut. Yeah. We have ones in LA. We have ones in Colorado. We have ones who have moved mid-pandemics. They're literally all over the country, right? And so it's also been this challenge of how do you build community through that and how do you um, build connectivity, right? And yeah. so, you know, we were definitely losing volunteers in early days because I realized that, yeah, like because people are, are um, you know, busy working on other things, et cetera, it's like easy to lose sort of like the passion, the closest to all the progress on the ground. And so, for example, we instituted weekly team meetings, just a way to keep the pulse. It's like something exciting happening literally every week. Probably not. I wish it was pro probably not, but you still keep that pulse, right? You still keep yeah. a way for volunteers to come back to home base and, you know, be part of the real building of the ship and being true owners type of thing. Follow-up question for you on this. Is is that volunteer model part, is, is that baked into your business model or is this simply where you are in your life cycle um, and eventually you'll go to a compensated model or what's your vision for that? Yeah. I mean, my vision is that eventually we'll go blended, right? Okay. And so it's like, it's really great that you asked that question because it's actually been an active board conversation in terms of thinking through the, hey, given where we are in our maturity, I've certainly um, come to see that um, you know, like one, what we've accomplished with just a pure volunteer staff has been incredible, right? And at the same time, 
that model purely is starting to fray on the edges a bit because basically the ship's just getting more complicated, <laughs> right? So the amount of capacity that's needed to keep the ship flowing while at the same time I'm wanting to build new parts of the ship, redirect the ship or whatever else, it's hard. It's sort of like we're almost getting to this um, this sort of like frontier of efficiency of the, like how many more volunteers do I um, do I really recruit versus like is it time for like even like a couple of, you know, small, small, lean team of full-time folks sure. to then leverage off of the volunteers to do so. So I think eventually it'll be it'll be a um, a blended model where, you know, I would still imagine keeping like a fairly heavy volunteer base with like a thin group of folks in the middle who can really focus the day-to-day and then also um, like be the live and breathe it, provide the, the core expertise that we need and then have the volunteers supplement the rest. Okay. Um, Because the other thing, so sorry, one more thing. The other thing I've certainly come to appreciate is that like, geez, building a business, um, so many facets to it, right? Like, you know, like I didn't have any experience with marketing. So even getting into marketing, you're like all of a sudden like, no, you need social media people and you need PR, but that's completely different from a content strategy. That's completely, all of a sudden I needed like 10 experts, right? As a nonprofit, I'm never going to go try to staff up a model where I have 10 marketing experts on staff. Right. And so that's where the volunteer thing really comes in, where we can get really world-class input in like a very part-timey way, because that's probably all we need anyways. And then doing that in a volunteer way, that's free. (laughs) That's like the highest ROI you can get, right? So that, you know, the money that we raise can really just go to community members who need it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right. So we've got just a few minutes left. I want to switch topics, um, if that's okay. Um, Because I, I, I saw in your bio that you were on the board of Connecticut Food Bank. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, why why the case of hunger? Like why is that one of the things that you focus on? Yeah, absolutely. So so one thing, so plug for Connecticut Food Bank. We actually just recently merged and rebranded. So now we're called Connecticut Food Share. Um, oh, so, so sorry about that. Thank no you. worries, no worries. And um, you know, for me, you know, and I've been on the board now for almost three years at this point. Um, food and hunger has just been something that I've always been really, really passionate about, right? Okay. Sort of anyone who knows me would be like, yep, Diana and food. Like whether it's cooking it, eating it, traveling for it, photographing for it, and advocating for for, you know, on behalf of those who who lack it, it's just been like a deep passion of mine. And then when I first got exposed to the previously known as Connecticut Food Bank and um, really got my head around really the statistics, even in just Connecticut alone, right? Like, I, you know, we're from this very privileged area and whatever. And it was one in six folks in Connecticut go to bed hungry every night. It shocked me and just sort of was in a, at that point, it was like a, um, I was looking for something to get deeper into the social impact space. So it was like a perfect moment of like, got it. This is where I can really drive some of my passions to really combat sort of this, um, you know, this, this food insecurity in a head on way by, you know, by, by joining sort of the biggest food bank in the state. Yeah. So, um, you know, at the start of COVID and for, for a good while throughout this pandemic, food banks and, and food rescues have been sort of the darlings in the nonprofit space, right? The, the giving has skyrocketed to, to most hunger relief organizations. Um, have you seen a two-part question? Have you seen the same thing uh, with your organization? And two, um, are you seeing any change uh, as we get deeper into the pandemic? Is, is anything looking different right now for them? Yeah. So, so on to your first question, definitely notice that difference, right? Like huge jump um, in terms of the level of giving from our community and whatever else in ways that we, you know, obviously deeply appreciated. And then as the pandemic has deepened, it's been interesting. Every time we get the updates, I think we're, we continue to be surprised on the upside in terms of the sustained support, hmm. right? Sort of like, I remember our development committee meetings where it's like, you know, <laughs> every month we meet, you know, the head development's like, and by the way, guys, the numbers probably won't be like this. You know, like it's like, it's elevated. It's like, you know, it's like managing expectations. And it's always really great the next time around as well, right? So I would say that 
that we're we're tipping down. Like I see, like we're tipping downwards some, right? Okay. Sort of like it's not like sort of not at the height of what sure. it really was at the height of the pandemic, but um, still like um, still just sort of disproportionately sort of like higher level of of giving and things like that in our space um, in a continued way. Okay, um, I don't. Still don't uh, none of us knows like what that means like a year from now or whatever right. else, but you know, the, the or a week from now, yeah. Or a week from now, like that type of thing. But you know, certainly the donor retention rates, the the interest from the community and, and just continuing to help this way has been really fantastic. Yeah, that makes sense. So sort of a, a two-sided question, right? W- whether it's your board service or or your your work at NeighborShare, um the um the the federal unemployment benefit uh, ended yesterday, right? Millions of people. Yeah, we'll take in less income this month because of that. How do you see that impacting your work on both sides of of the work that you do? Yeah, I mean, I think we've certainly seen even from the impact of the pandemic alone that shifts in like that, right? Where like the shift's not even like necessarily that huge, right? Like in terms of the amount that we're getting right. people, et cetera, like huge implications that we'll see basically right away. <laughs> Right. Like, it, it, like sort of like I think one of the things that almost shocked all of us as a community and as a nation with the pandemic hitting was sort of like this much more visceral understanding of like an appreciation of how close to the edge folks are. <laughs> right. Yeah. To going from like, hey, I thought they were kind of stable and kind of OK to like, wait a minute, they were missing one or two paychecks and boom, crisis. Right. And I do worry that that's sort of like a bit of the of the. um of another wave coming as a result of that, right? Where we'll, like, you know, once again, immediately translate into like the wait a minute, like the benefits are stopping before folks have truly restabilized. Yeah. And then so does that translate into longer lines of the food bank or more needs coming through for certain basic needs coming from the neighbor share platform? I wouldn't be surprised by that, unfortunately. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, well, Diana, this has been a, a really insightful conversation. I re- enjoyed getting to know you and learn more about NeighborShare. Tell me this, how, how does somebody um, who might want to get involved with NeighborShare either to support it or to um, to become a partner or, or really in, in any way, how do, how do they reach you or whoever they should reach to engage with the organization? No, fantastic. So, you know, once again, please check our website out at mbshare.org. And then I would certainly love to talk to anybody who's interested in potentially becoming uh, a partner in our network, a strategic partner as we as we figure out sort of like working on scaling out NeighborShare or just becoming a volunteer on our team. Um, and to do so, please just reach out to me at diana at mbshare.org. It's D-I-A-N-A at mbshare.org. And I would love to speak with, with anybody. As you can tell, I'm super, super passionate. I would love to get the message out. And so I would certainly appreciate uh, any reach outs. Awesome. Well, thank you again for being here. And thanks for sharing with us today. Thank you, Andrew. This is wonderful. Have you read my Amazon number one best-selling book, 101 Biggest Mistakes Nonprofits Make and How You Can Avoid Them Yet? It's the book that I wrote with expertise from over 20 nonprofit leaders and their 300 years of combined experience. You can download it for free today. Just visit andrewolson.net and go to the free resources tab on my site.